your construction business. I am your host, Leah Pilconis. Our topic today is natural disaster impacts on construction projects. And this is actually part two of a two-part series. In this final episode, our expert panel is going to explore how to navigate through a complex insurance claim for construction delays during the course of construction. We're also going to talk about common insurance policy coverage issues and strategies to full recovery after a natural disaster. If you missed it, please check out part one for best practices on preparing for and mitigating the impacts of a natural disaster. We have an expert panel with us today, and I'd like to invite our guests to introduce themselves and say a little bit about what they do. Tracy, can you kick us off? Sure. Uh, this is Tracy Sachs. I'm at Sachs, Dornberger, and Vita. We are insurance coverage lawyers on behalf of policyholders. It's exclusively what we do. The entire firm of 38 lawyers does nothing but uh, insurance coverage on behalf of policyholders. And for AGC purposes, it should be noted that we actually spend probably more than 60% of our time is actually spent for people in the construction industry doing insurance coverage. Thanks, Tracy. Joe, how about you? Hi, Leah. This is Joe Poliopko. I'm uh, with Interstate Restoration. I am the uh, Director of Global Insurance and Risk Management, and I come today with uh, 26 years of experience in the construction industry, both uh, vertical construction, horizontal construction, and now in the restoration. Welcome, Joe. Frank, your turn. Hey, Leah. This is Frank Russo. I'm with a company called Procore Solutions and Consulting, and we focus on helping policyholders uh, prepare and present claims um, throughout the claims process from from day one through hopefully ultimate settlement. Uh, We do a lot of construction claims work and we're, we're doing this across the country. Great. Thank you all for being here today. So we definitely have the right people on the line. And again, we're going to be talking about presenting a natural disaster claim for insurance recovery. Tracy, I'd like to direct the first question to you. What types of insurance can you get to cover your construction project in the event of a natural disaster? Well, actually, if, you're, if your project is uh, in the process of construction and that's the coverage you need, most likely the coverages after a, a natural disaster occurs is going to be under your builder's risk policy. Although sometimes when the owner, developer is the purchaser of the coverage, sometimes they're actually tagging on to their existing commercial property insurance. Uh, a builder's risk endorsement uh, that that allows for the builder's risk coverage under their general, general coverage. Um, the I would I would say that the you should always work with a team, and I think that's why we have a team approach to this podcast. But the risk management department should be working with their broker and securing appropriate coverage. We talked about a little bit more about this in the first episode. I'm going to try and focus a little bit post claim um, and. The builder's risk coverage and the commercial property coverage, as I mentioned in the previous episode, are first-party coverages, and you need to look at them to figure out when a, when a, a loss occurs, where is the coverage? How do you measure how many deductibles you have? How is the deductible itself measured? Do you have different buckets of coverage in which the, the losses that you've incurred fall? Are they property damage? Are they soft costs? Are they business interruption? Is it a contingent business interruption? 
all of these things need to be specified and put into a post-claim, need to be bucketed in, a, in an appropriate way. And this is one of the things that Procore, for instance, is an expert at helping with, is the bucketing of these items. And typically, a firm like ourselves, who are insurance coverage lawyers or policyholders, work in conjunction with a, a, a company like Procore to outline what the policy language is that provides what the buckets are, so that they're lining up the claim in conjunction with the operations folks to figure out uh, exactly where things fall. I'll say it this way, from a post-claim perspective, the insurance company doesn't write you a letter telling you about your loss without having a full understanding of what the policy says. Policyholders often make the mistake that they do not have an expert on board like ourselves or like Procore or anyone else who really understands the coverage before they start sending in their claim in a way that's not properly bucketed, and they may be putting these right in the place where the exclusions occur and where the sublimits are too low or where they don't actually have any coverage at all, where that wasn't accurate. If they understood how the coverage worked, they would have described this appropriately uh, in the first instance, and that's really the first thing that has to happen post-claim. You need to look at that policy, and you need to look at what, what the all the deductible sublimits and exclusions are and make sure that you organize the claim with an ex appropriate expert in such a way that it lines up with the coverages. Yeah, if I could, Leah, if I could add to Tracy's comment, I'm, he made a, ver a lot of very good points. One of the important points that I resonates with me that I see often in helping clients prepare these types of natural disaster claims is, first of all, a lot of folks don't even read the policy. You know, they just start... Uh, working and rightfully so on mitigating the loss and, and the dollars start to stack up and um, ultimately they just dump a, a pile of information on the insurance company and, and hope and expect to get paid um, all those dollars back and, and they don't take the time as Tracy's outlined to dissect what actually the coverage is, what it says and even more importantly, you know, around sublimits, Tracy mentioned, um, I can tell you a lot of times I see where we get involved later on, a client thinks they have coverage for a certain item, and they do, but when they look closely, when we look closely at the policy, there may be a specific sublimit that um, is, uh, is applicable that in, is, is reducing the cost ultimately that can be reversed in the claim. Um, sometimes there'll be a flat uh, specific sublimit, like say $500,000 for a certain item, and a lot of times it'll also continue and say, or a percentage of another sublimit. So if you're not tracking how all these different sublimits um, are identified and then coexist with one another, a lot of times, uh, again, clients, unfortunately, will be in a position to say they have less coverage than they actually thought. So it's also worth pointing out when we're talking about the builder's risk coverage that it's this is what we refer to as an all-risk policy. Uh, years ago, it was much more common to have what they call specified perils coverage, meaning that it would cover only things actually listed in the insuring agreement. But almost all policies that I see now are all risk in the sense that it says that everything is covered unless it's actually excluded by the policy language. So it's a very, very broad coverage. So looking at those exclusions becomes absolutely critical uh, to make sure that uh, not just the purchasing, but at the time that you're putting the claim together, that you've thought through what the exclusions are and what the coverages are. And when we start to talk about bucketing, there can be things that overlap. You can see, and I've seen policies that aren't very clear, to be frank, about whether or not, uh, actually, Frank's with us, I'll be Tracy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. So going forward with this, there, there are some of the, the coverages overlap. Um, 
you know, debris removal? Is that part of your repair cost? Is, what about expediting, acceleration? Is, uh, is that property damage or it's not? Uh, or are your general conditions, are they considered to be part of your business interruption when it's uh, continuing business, uh, general conditions at a later date? Or is that part of your repair cost? Now, how you articulate that uh, should really depend upon if you've got a choice that it could be one, the other, or both. Then in that case, um, you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that maximizes your coverage, and therefore you shouldn't start to talk about um, the, the claims uh, to start with without having looked at what the end result is. I often use the example. There's a great old movie I love. It's uh, called uh, It's Anatomy of a Murder. Uh, that involves uh, um, a, a case where the, the lawyer, Jimmy Stewart, sees his client for the first time and he says, before you tell me what happened in this alleged murder, let me explain to you how the insanity defense works. Now tell me. <laughs> and what happens, of course, is he gives relevant information that may help in his defense. But if you haven't read the policy, you're not aware of what's relevant and what might cause exclusion, and therefore you should do so before communicating with your insurer. And if I also, again, this is Frank, may add to Tracy's comments, um, specifically when we're talking about builder's risk policies, in, in our experience, you know, Tracy rightfully emphasized the need to understand the buckets, the sublimits. Um, if you have um, multiple parties that are looking to claim their own costs on a project, it's, it requires even further analysis of what those adequate, whether or not those sublimits are adequate in the placement of a policy. So you might have a, a general contractor, a subcontractor, and an owner-developer all uh, hiring their own experts and, and claiming those costs as professional fee coverage. So, um, you know, the, the multiple party approach and aspect of a builder's risk claim that needs to be understood uh, in accordance with, you know, potential supplements and coverage items in the policy. Thank you. Let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into a builder's risk claim. Thinking ahead to a day where you might find yourself in a situation where you need to present a detailed builder's risk claim. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. Joe, can, can you share with us some best practices regarding record-keeping and documentation? Absolutely, Leah, and, thank, and thankfully I have a lot of hindsight and a lot of experience, good and bad, in, in submitting builder's risk claims as a general contractor. Um, one of the things that becomes critical after the initial report, um, so you want to have, again, you want to have your team educated as to what the coverages are. So that if, if in the event of a builder's risk claim, they can they can give you a call. Because the last thing you want to do is kind of get to it late. Uh, timing is critical on the reporting side. But after it's been reported, you need to communicate directly with your operations team to do two things. One, set expectations. Uh, talk to them about how the claims process is going to go. Uh, make the introduction to the the insurance adjuster if that's if that's a possibility early. Uh, establish record keeping from the standpoint of job cost codes that are specific to the work that's being done. And, and we've seen a lot of, I've seen in the past, a lot of uh, project managers, superintendents that would like to start to put everybody on the fix. Um, the reality of the situation is that, and the insurance company knows it, that you're not necessarily going to have 100% of your labor working on the fix. You are still probably have areas as a contractor to still make progress on that work. Um, so you're not going to have 100% of your workforce 
working on fixing that problem. What you will have is you will have some folks that will be specialized and focusing on fit the fix and others that are going to be working and getting the project, uh, you know, kind of still keeping that timeline moving and, and working on, on, on the project itself the way it normally would have been. So the one thing that I would suggest everybody do is start to set up those cost codes so that you can track exactly your time, materials, and, and the folks that are actually working on that project. And if I can add to that uh, question as well, and I agree with Joe, uh, this is Frank, um, you know, preparing claims is not easy, and especially in a, in a high-dollar, multi-million-dollar claim um, or some sort of complex coverage issues, which I know Tracy will talk about. Um, just it's, it's not an easy process, and what separates those that have successful um, uh, experiences with claims, and, and I know that's kind of a, a conundrum to think about a successful claim, but it's those that take control of the process and know the one important fact that it's when you have a policy and you have a loss, it's your responsibility as a policyholder to present the claim. It's the insurance company's responsibility to adjust the claim. That's an important point. Again, a lot of times uh, we get involved later in the process where maybe a claim has uh, become uh, contentious and the client says, well, they haven't paid all my costs. And I'll say, well, have you presented your claim? And they'll say, well, we, we gave them a lot of data. Well, I said, have you presented your claim? The insurance company needs to focus on the areas of the policy and the areas of coverage that you believe are in place and how the dollars relate to the loss tied to those areas of coverage. So it's a different and it's, uh, it's a different approach. It's a more proactive approach. And in my opinion, a more effective approach to actually prepare your claim and then have the conversation with the adjustment company on why costs are covered or why they're not, um, and to whittle down the differences. You know, an insurance claim is also not um, a process that you have to present data and wait to, all the way till the end to get paid. It's it's important to understand as costs are are incurred and, and proved um, to have conversations with the adjustment team on 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 whether or not they agree on certain items. And if they do agree on certain items, we push those to the side and we and we ask for interim payments on those items. And we kind of focus the process on cash flow to an ultimate, hopefully full reimbursement at the end of a claim. And when it comes to builder's risk claims, in my experience, it's important to understand the difference between uh, what we'll refer to as hard costs versus soft costs, um, because they mean different things from an insurance policy perspective. So examples of hard costs in a construction matter uh, that could be covered include debris removal, cost to repair or replace um, damage from a permanent perspective, sometimes referred to as permanent works, um, temporary works, which are temporary-related uh, cost fix, pollution cleanup, if there's some sort of materials on site as a result of the event, site preparation, testing, professional fees. These are all categories that I would refer to as hard costs. Um, and those hard costs, some of them are, I would say, are pretty self-explanatory. Some are um, a more uh, nuanced that you need to read the policy and see what the actual definition definition is. And Tracy hit on uh, one category of costs that are always confusing to clients, and that's the difference between expediting expense and extra expense. These are two common insurance coverages that have would appear to be similar meanings, but can be looked at very differently. Um, they would have usually have coverage buckets and separate coverage sublimits, and depending on how a claim is presented, you could potentially put yourself in a scenario where you had coverage, but the costs were not evaluated and presented in a way to allow you to receive those coverage, uh, those coverage under those items. You know, expediting expenses are normally costs that are incurred to uh, speed up the repair of damaged property, such as overtime wages or um, express uh, freight costs to get equipment on site, 
whereas extra expenses are costs that are uh, costs that are above normal that would not have been incurred, quote unquote, but for the event. So they have to be tracked separately. They have to be tracked with some nuance. Um, and again, the hard cost side of the claims presentation does require that nuance in terms of what the policy language says uh, we can and can't do. Um, from a soft cost perspective, soft costs are also important and probably more misunderstood in terms of a builder's risk delay in, in startup claim. You have items such as the interest to finance the cost and the overall development of the project. Now, again, back to my earlier comments of multiple stakeholders, if you're a general contractor, that might not be something that you're even concerned about because the owner is the one financing the project, but the dollars that you're spending to mitigate the overall impact has an effect on the owner's potential increased cost of interest to finance that project. So it's a it's a it's a very um, mutual kind of uh, working relationship that needs to be evaluated on a decision by decision uh, basis. You also have items like incremental real estate taxes as soft costs. So if we go beyond a certain time period and the real estate taxes of our property go up, you need to prove how those costs are incremental. Same thing around additional insurance premiums. If if your builder's risk policy covers a two-year period and two years two years course of construction, any delays that are provable to that specific event. Um, and cost to acquire additional insurance should and would be covered if you have that coverage in place. Um, these, all, these all have to be proven as incremental and related to the event. So an effective, in my opinion, an effective insurance claim presentation has to be aligned with the proper policy coverage buckets to become that tool for cash flow and to have um, costs recovered as quickly and, and practically as possible. Tracy, what about the importance of giving notice? In the last episode, Joe, uh, Joe had mentioned, and I want to emphasize it again here, that notice is critical. Notice, notice, notice. I think I, I promised myself like 30 years ago when I started doing insurance coverage presentations that I wouldn't do a presentation without talking about late notice because it is very frustrating to me as the lawyer when you come to me, you've got a great claim, except your notice was late, and our entire battle is about whether or not the notice was on time. I think they used to say back when I was younger that notice should be like voting in Chicago, uh, it should be early and often. Um, so uh, I don't know if I, I don't make I don't mean to better Chicago today, but that's all <laughs> Gentlemen, we've been talking about the proactive process as the policyholder presenting the claim, and it's also important to understand the role of the insurance company and what they need to do to be able to pay your claim. Frank, what can you tell us about that? Right, their job is to evaluate the data. If you don't give them data and you ask for a claim, you know, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. It's the term trust but verify. So the, the better the data that can be provided, you know, the more smooth your claim process will go. In addition, the insurance company will have their own experts that need to evaluate the claim. So one of the things that we always see is just kind of the um, surprise by our clients where they'll say, they'll say, well, the insurance company's requested 25 or 50 items, you know, in a four-page letter. And, you know, sometimes we'll refer to that as, as death by RFI or request for information. But it is important not only to, um, to, to, to respond and to present information in a concerted effort, but also to track what was asked for and when it was provided so that you don't want a 50-item RFI where you provided 49 of those 50 items and the one that you didn't present or uh, respond to hold up a $10 million claim because that's what can happen because the process of you know, again, valuing the loss from our perspective, presenting it, and then adjusting with the insurance company. They need to make sure they're getting all the information they need, and we need to make sure that we're showing them we presented them everything that they've asked for to kind of keep the process moving. And I can make another point. We've talked about third parties. We've got lawyers, and we've got third-party adjusters, and we've got internal can help, whether it be a risk manager or what have you. 
but using your broker and going through this process with your broker is going to be critical as well. They can help you and they have leverage with the carriers to help you with the claims process as well. So don't, don't try to go it alone. Um, you already pay for those services with a broker. You can already get pretty far down the road on a claim if you do it right with your, with your broker and it doesn't cost you any more additional money. I'm going to throw that out there. Thank you guys for that really valuable information. Tracy, my last question is for you. You've spent a lot of years uh, working with the construction industry and you've worked with a lot of contractors. And I'd like to know, what are some of the common insurance policy coverage issues that you've seen in your practice? And can you offer some strategies that might help some of our contractors navigate through uh, builders' risk claims? I'm gonna mention three different main areas. There are many things that come up, but very commonly, uh, concurrent causation can be an issue in multiple ways, um, as well as um, issues regarding the delay exclusion, which I think is often misused by the insurance company, and loss of market is uh, kind of mixed in there as well. Uh, but the third one is faulty workmanship, which tends to raise its head even though it shouldn't have been a workmanship issue. So let me talk about each one separately. Uh, what I mean by concurrent causation is you can have uh, either – because one of the causes of the loss is covered and one of the causes of the loss is excluded and both are combining together to cause your loss. For instance, if you have a tremendous snow event during the course of your construction and the roof collapses, uh, and it, 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 the question would be whether or not it was that caused by faulty workmanship because you should have had a stronger roof or was it uh, caused by uh, the natural disaster of having such a tremendous snowfall. If the faulty workmanship is excluded and the snow uh, would have been covered, it's going to make a difference as to which causation, which cause prevails. This becomes, this is slightly different. Uh, we have to remember that insurance coverage law is a matter of state law, and each state does treat concurrent causation a little differently. Uh, for instance, California has what I refer to as the pro-policyholder rule that if either one of them is covered, you should have coverage. Most states probably follow what they call either the dominant or efficient cause model, which says whichever seems to be the stronger, more important uh, of the two causation, that'll, that is the one that, that uh, is, determines whether it's covered or excluded. That one's a little slippery because that's sort of in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, the judge or jury themselves might decide, I think this one is the stronger cause and maybe not the other one. Um, and the other, some, sometimes there are rules out there that say the first in a chain of events or the last in a chain of events are the, will be considered the dominant cause that, it, that determines coverage. So I'll give an example. We had a case uh, uh, involved a convention center in Texas, and uh, there was uh, both wind, there was wind-driven rain, and the problem was that there was a wind deductible that had a percentage deductible. And the percentage was a percentage of the entire value of the project. So that uh, the project was almost complete when this wind-driven rain event occurred, and the rain did not have a deductible. And if the rain was the dominant cause, this deductible didn't apply. And by the way, when the deductible applied, there would be no payment because the deductible would have been that high. Um, but if the, if the rain was the cause of it, it was fully covered. Uh, so that that issue, when wind and rain, the rain alone would have just fallen down, not going inside the building. Uh, the wind alone without rain wouldn't have caused any damage. Then the question would be, which one is the dominant cause? 
uh, again, this goes back to the earlier part of our discussion, determining what your characterization of the events that occurred before you start to talk to your insurance company is important. Talking to the broker would be a good idea in that regard. Reading the policy would be a good idea. Having experts lined up who are going to bucket the claim properly would be a good idea in this regard. That all leads to that issue. So let me just spend a minute on another part of it, which is the delay exclusion. I often see uh, letters back from insurance companies that say that the delay here is not covered, you have a delay exclusion, but you look more closely at the delay exclusion, usually what it says is that losses caused by delay are not covered. The insurance company often takes the position that delay caused by a covered cause of loss is not covered. There's a big difference. You have a natural disaster that causes delay, that should be covered. Delay in itself, when it causes loss, should not be covered. So that you should look careful at these exclusions. You probably should look, have your broker and possibly counsel look at it together when you get such a denial like that on delay. The last one is faulty workmanship. And you, I, I kind of gave the example of the roof to begin with. But the, uh, the faulty workmanship exclusion really isn't something you were expecting to face when you've got a natural disaster. This isn't about workmanship. It's about the natural disaster. But very often... The insurance company will look to that and say, well, if it was properly built, this natural disaster would not have actually had an effect on your project. Therefore, is it the faulty workmanship or is it the natural disaster that's actually the cause under these circumstances? Um, the faulty workmanship, I would say, this may be uh, just thinking about on the policy buying side. There's different ways this is done. Uh, it becomes a little easier to avoid this exclusion if you don't start out, out of the gate. Uh, pointing fingers at the different contractors and the owner uh, and the architect and everybody claiming this is your fault, this is your fault, this is your fault. I think the better strategy is to put that on hold. You don't need to worry about fault in a first-party coverage builder's risk policy. It's not a fault-based policy. You should all join together uh, and try to present the claim together to the insurance company. Preserve all your claims against each other for a later day. Uh, if you don't get the coverage from the insurance policy, if you do, you won't need to bring those claims. And when, if you try to do it simultaneously, the only one that benefits by the finger pointing is the insurance company. Thank you, Tracy. And I really want to thank all three of you, Tracy, Joe, and Frank, for being here with us today. Such a treat to have three industry experts in claims management, litigation, and restoration all together to share with us their insights and perspectives on natural disaster impacts on construction projects. This, again, was part two of our two-part series, so I hope that you will check out part one for best practices on preparing for and mitigating the impacts of natural disasters. I want to thank you all very much for listening. And I want to mention that we will have some additional information in the show notes for this episode, including links to the web pages for each of our guest speakers that were on this podcast today. And this has been an episode of AGC Constructor Cast. You can search for the Constructor Cast in your podcast app or stream and download all available episodes right from your computer. Just visit www dot org slash constructor cast. <laughs>